Chapter 9 A quote relevant to Chapter 9 from Ben Gunn, Treasure Island, a book by Robert Louis Stevenson. You mightn't have a piece of cheese about you now. No. Uh, well, many's the long night I've dreamt of cheese. Toasted, mostly. Kirkby Stevens to Kelt. Thirteen miles, six hours walking. The hotel manageress was a slim woman of quick movements with large bulging eyes that dominated the rest of her features. She commanded attention by means of a slow and very direct gaze. Even though her stare was a little disconcerting, she had an agreeable disposition, and before our departure took great pride in showing us around the hotel. Her humour altered somewhat when she explained the function of the pulpit-like open-sided cubicle that overhung the wooden panelled staircase. It was a wig chamber a relic of the 18th century, when the landed gentry wore powdered wigs. On the shelf at the centre of the chamber was a wooden wig stand that was beautifully worked, brightly polished, and completely bald. A prized specimen of the wigmaker's art used to adorn that stand, the manageress explained. It was stolen by loutish rugby supporters some time ago. The missing hairpiece had no doubt come to an ignominious end. The horsehair toupee may have become a treasured rugby club trophy, or been tossed into a ditch as a decoy to bamboozle amorous hedgehogs. The weather forecast predicted an overcast morning clearing to bright periods in the afternoon. The trail through Kirkby Stevens followed twisting back lanes between tiny flower-adorned cottages squeezed close at odd angles. Once across Frank's Bridge, we spanned the River Eden. Village life was forgotten at the behest of the countryside. Before making the open spaces above Hartley Hill, we passed an enormous quarried crater and limeworks on the outskirts of the village. On the Pennine foothills, the air was soft, but noticeably cooler than when we started out. Far off, stretching back towards Cumbria, the sky was high and bright with thin silver-grey clouds. Closer, seemingly at eye level, ominous black clouds sucked the colour from the landscape, leaving all leaden and dreary. The higher we tramped, the more we became aware of the threatening weather. Like a ragged omen of doom, a bank of black cloud hung close and low over our heads. A fresh breeze chilled the air. It was time to put on our waterproof gear. Like the Lake District, the Pennines are a walker's paradise although its popularity and heavy usage has resulted in severe erosion in places. In an effort to preserve the countryside, whilst keeping it open to the public, the Yorkshire Dales Park Authority has designated several alternative paths for walkers to use at different times of the year. Our trail was the Blue Route, for use between August and November. This path skirts the Nine Standards Rig before following the Eastern Trail towards Whitstondale. The Nine Standards are oversized slate monuments built on the crest of the hill. The higher we climbed, the more massive their black silhouettes became. The leaden sky hardened their outline, lending the troop of mysterious follies an air of menace, like a foraging party for an army of stone giants. No doubt, as for the thousands of coast-to-coast -coast walkers who pass this way each year, all we could do was wonder at the monument's obscure meaning marvel at their dignified presence, and thank the industrious souls who'd stack the stones.
The cool breeze strengthened to a squall, pressing clothes close and tight. A light drizzle flurried in the air, making it a woolen hat over the ears day. Mother Nature had called to say hello, and given us a gentle reminder that the Pennines could be a changeable, bleak, and dangerous place to be. The hilltops are wild windswept moorland where mosses, hardy grasses, and marsh reeds struggle to survive. The wet conditions left the blue root muddy and the going heavy. Even though the local authorities had battled erosion for many years, the path had spread wide and was falling away under the daily pounding of trampers' boots. One bog led to another, leading to oozing water channels with sloughing black backs. We slithered across slippery sections of sticky mud and crab-walked over carpets of reeds tramped flat by walkers bridging patches of marsh. Even under the trying conditions, with buffeting winds and rain on the face, I felt more content than I had ever done, boxed up in an air-conditioned tower block, staring for hours on end at a flickering computer screen. During the early afternoon, we left what for many centuries had been, and is now no more, the county of Westmoreland. Onwards from the ancient province, most gills, becks, brooks, sykes, creeks, streams, and rivers abandon their westward journey to the enclosed warmth of the Irish Sea and adopt a new alliance, flowing eastwards towards the open cold waters of the North Sea. Below in the valley, sheltered by Raven's Seat Moor, we forded several gills and sykes that swirled into the fast-flowing Whitsondale Beck. As it had been in the Lake District, so too it was in the Pennines. Water music was our constant companion. We followed the meandering Whitsondale Beck through rough rolling countryside. Over millennia, the water had scored a course through a staggered staircase of limestone sediments lying horizontally across its path. At each step, the water's mirrored surface folded into a new and charming waterfall. The beauty of the place had worked its magic on Wainwright's heart, for he'd taken great care to capture the scene in delicate works of pen and ink. Along the valley, the hillsides are dotted with a unique form of sheepfold, not the usual open pen enclosure, but detached two-story stone buildings roofed in slate, square-based, and about the same size as a standard 19th-century two-up, two-down factory workers' terraced house. During the worst of the winter, sheep find shelter on the ground floor. Fodder, stored on the upper level, is tossed down for the sheep below. The mere existence of these sturdy buildings is a stark reminder of just how wild and hostile the Pennines often are. Considering the valley was lush and green, with a tree-fringed river and steep gorges for safe nesting, it was both surprising and disappointing that there were so few birds to cheer us along the way. Despite the fact that we'd been stopped in our tracks at one place, we arrived in Kild by mid-afternoon. A marvellously cantankerous Texel ram had frozen Peter and me with a challenging Catalan stare that proclaimed, This is my patch, and don't you forget it. Not before the ram was sure we'd got the message, did it saunter away to let us pass. Keld is a tiny 19th-century hamlet of mottled limestone and slate buildings set alongside the fast-flowing River Swale. It's the place generally considered to be the halfway point on the coast-to-coast path. Where's all the mud? bugled the Cumbrian mother and daughter in harmony. 
We were spattered from head to foot. Like many walkers, the mother and daughter team gave the impression of being caught up in a hurry-up-and-wait race with themselves. They galloped along, leaning forward for speed, splashing straight through bogs, marshes and rivers, and with Olympian agility, leapfrogging barbed wire fences. By contrast, Peter and I amble along on the lookout for solid ground or stepping stones to cross wet or boggy sections. Colleen whisked us away to our Pennine safe house in the nearby hamlet of Thwaite. We were put up in a small family hotel that is popular with the elderly. Indoors, there was a welcoming atmosphere of relaxed contentment. My room was very small with an ensuite that housed a wash basin and toilet. An inspired lateral-thinking plumber had located the shower cubicle at the end of the bed. Behind the bed head was one large window, which no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't budge. I needed an open window to dry the washing and replenish the room's meagre oxygen supply. After seeking help, Peter opened the window in two seconds flat. I'd spent my working life as a chartered engineer and still hadn't learned the basic principle of challenging assumptions. I'd been pushing the window to open it, not pulling, as required. After a wash and brush up, we met in the small bar for a beer, whilst other guests were being served tea in an adjacent lounge. Colleen became intrigued by the hefty black and white stack many people were having with their tea. What's the slice? Colleen asked the landlord. It's a specialty of the district, he teased. Very popular throughout North Yorkshire, thanks to the Wallace and Grummet film, A Grand Day Out. Yes, Colleen persisted, her frustration evident. But what is it? I'll let you into a secret. If you promise to keep it under your hat, the landlord promised with a wry smile. No worries, mate, Colleen agreed in a rush. It's a wedge of fruit cake, topped off with a slab of cheese. Wensleydale, of course, the landlord replied over his shoulder before disappearing into the lounge, bearing snacks for the other guests' afternoon fix. In an instant, we level-eyed one another and made a silent compact to sample the novelty in the near future. In the evening, we again congregated in the bar for an aperitif and to study the dinner menu. Whilst replacing the menu on the lounge sideboard, I was nearly knocked flying by a jutting-jawed, big-bellied woman dressed from top to toe in blue denim. No obstacle, not even the retired grumpy, was going to prevent this woman from learning what was on offer for the evening meal. For obvious reasons, I knew it was dangerous to get between a badger and her cubs, but it was news to me that in our instant gratification society, it had become dangerous to get between an anti-anorexic Amazon and a carte de jour. At precisely 6.30, a gong was sounded which stimulated an immediate response. Ample bottoms rolled forward on cushions, liberating tortured springs to regain shape as the mass migration began. The dining room was a place of peaceful contentment, where guests spoke in hushed tones, and the diffuse light of the autumn evening flattered all. It was a most civilized hotel, in which the guests and the family running the business ate together. In their hectic roster, the evening meal was the only opportunity the family had to enjoy one another's company. Homemade Stilton and Guinness spread, roast pork, and an irresistible selection of desserts were certain to subvert all but the most stalwart waste watchers. 
During our meal, Peter was overtaken by a bout of reflux. He retired after losing his dinner down the toilet. His complaint is an hereditary problem that could have been solved years before. Peter, in common with most of us, doesn't relish the prospect of going under the knife. After a nightcap, Colleen and I also hit the hay. I was led to believe that the bedroom had neither wireless nor TV because the hotel was in a blind spot where reception was poor. I found this explanation difficult to believe, as we were in a country famed worldwide for its national broadcasting and the hotel was hardly 50 miles from dozens of large towns. I think the broadcasting blackout was a deliberate ruse to keep the hotel fully occupied. Perhaps, like soldiers recovering from shell shock, visitors select the hotel to cleanse their minds of the constant barrage of soul-destroying news to which we are subject each day. How odd the world can sometimes seem. There I was, tucked up in bed, deep in the Yorkshire Pennines, reading a novel selected from my Brisbane book club. I was able to email my book critique to Australia, but, as a news junkie, was fated to face current affairs cold turkey alone.